I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew in front of you, in the rack. Revelation 5, verses 1 through 10. And I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on a throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I wept much that no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Weep not, lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went out and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and with golden bowls full of incense, in which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals. For thou wast slain, and by thy blood didst ransom men from God, from every tribe and tongue and people, and nation, and has made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Noel and I have talked often over the years about what makes a admirable woman and what makes an admirable man. And we have concluded, uh, among other things, that An admirable or no man is truly admirable who does not have a measure of the more feminine qualities. And no woman is truly admirable who does not have a measure of the more masculine qualities. A woman who acts too much like a man, we don't admire, we may pity, we may be offended by, but we don't admire. And a man who acts too much like a woman, we may pity, we may be offended, but we don't admire. But neither do we admire the kind of people who are often described as all man or all woman. Because those phrases generally signify a narrowness and a limitation of capacity to think and feel in certain ways. So you're you're, a one-track mind to feel or think or act in just one way. And there isn't the breadth of capacity to feel and to think and to react which goes into making a complex and harmonious, admirable man or woman. 
To admire the, the people that are described that way often is like saying that a male chorus would be more male if they just all sing bass. Or a, a women's chorus would be more feminine if they'd all sing soprano. Well, that's probably true. But it doesn't make them a better chorus for it. People who know music know how much there should be. What makes a male chorus sound great is that some of the voices have a measure of the more feminine sound. And what makes a a women's chorus sound great is that some of the voices have a measure of the more masculine sound. People who know music know what that balance should be. And people who are good judges of character know what the balance should be in a man and in a woman, too. The highest and the deepest kinds of Admirableness are not simple things. They're complex things. There is a difference between a male chorus and a female chorus. And there's a difference between an admirable man and an admirable woman. Now, the only reason I begin with this is not because I'm going to talk about maleness and femaleness today any further than right here but because I want to illustrate a truth that relates to Jesus Christ. I want, as a result of this message, this is my prayer, that we would come to think hard about what makes excellence, beauty, worthiness in a person. And that the recognition of that would cause you to recognize in Jesus Christ A person of infinite worth, infinite excellency, and infinite beauty. So that you would be drawn to love Him, and honor Him, and follow Him, and obey Him, no matter what it costs. That's my goal. Now, the principle I'm trying to illustrate, the principle of of beauty, or worth, or, or praiseworthiness, or excellence, is this. Beauty or excellence, consists in the right proportion of diverse qualities. Beauty or excellence consists in the right proportion of diverse qualities. Now, that's a very abstract definition, so let me flesh it out with some illustrations. We admire, I speak for myself anyway, and most of you, I believe, we admire Jesus Christ because He's glorious. He has glory like a sunrise. But we admire that glory all the more because He's lowly and humble. We admire His transcendence, His height. He's way up there, beyond where any of us is. But we admire His transcendence all the more Because it's accompanied by an incredible condescension. We admire His uncompromising justice. 
But we admire it all the more because it's tempered with mercy. We admire His majesty because it's clothed in meekness. We admire His equality with God. But I admire His equality with God all the more because it's shot through with a profound reverence for God. We admire the fact that He was worthy of everything good, but all the more because He was patient to suffer everything evil. We admire Him because He has sovereign dominion over the world. He reigns supreme. But I admire His sovereign dominion all the more because it clothes a spirit of obedience and submission. We admire the fact that He stumped those proud scribes with His incredible wisdom. But I admire that wisdom all the more because He he was simple enough to take time for children. would put them in His lap, would talk to them and bless them. And we admire the power that with one word could still the storm. But we admire that power all the more because he didn't use it to bring down lightning on the Samaritans or get himself off the cross. You see what I mean? You catch on? That excellence, beauty, in its highest dimensions is not a simple thing. It's a complex thing. It's the union in a magnificent harmony and integration of extraordinarily diverse excellencies. The students asked Bonaventure, the uh, Franciscan during the Middle Ages, why don't men love God more? And Bonaventure answered, they don't love Him because they don't know Him. They don't know Him. And that's the way I feel this morning. If I, by the grace of God, from this text in Revelation 5, could just get a flicker of the excellency of Christ into your heart, you'd love it more than you love anything in this world. You'd trust Him. You'd go out after Him and follow Him at any cost. And so that's my prayer. And perhaps we should pause and pray before we go to the text. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, if we're on the right track, if herein consists an admirableness and an excellency and a beauty and a worthiness that you combine in an incredible unity, extraordinarily diverse excellencies, open our eyes to see it. Take this text, O oh God, and make it a torch. Make it like the sun rising in the east this morning. And don't let anybody be blinded by the God of this world so that they can't see the light and the beauty in the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Perform the miracle of enlightenment and renewal and awakening, I pray. In Jesus' great name, amen. Let's go to the text. 
Revelation 5. We'll begin at verse 5 to get the main point, and then we'll back up with some preliminary observations in verses 1 to 4. In verse 5, now the setting, as you're probably aware, is that in chapters 4 and 5, John is being granted an extraordinary vision of heaven and the throne room of God. And so here he is before the throne, and it says in verse 5, Then one of the elders, these 24 beings around the throne, we don't know quite who they are or what they are, but there they are, said to me, Weep not, lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So Jesus is a lion, right? Jesus is a lion. Now, what's a lion? A lion is an animal of prey, kills for food. A lion is strong. A lion is majestic. A lion is dangerous. And Jesus is a lion. And look at verse 6. When John is granted to see the lion and not just hear about the lion, he sees something very astonishing. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So the lion is a lamb. What's a lamb? A lamb is easily preyed upon. A lamb is weak. A lamb is lowly. We shear a lamb to get clothes, and we kill lambs to get food. Jesus is a lion, and Jesus is a lamb. And so here's my main point, and then I'll try to show you where I get it. Because he is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion, Jesus has a right to bring history to an end for the glory of his name and the good of his people. I'll say it again. Because he is a lamb-like lion and a lion-like lamb, Jesus has the right and the worthiness to bring this age to a close for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. Now, let's back up and make Three preliminary observations from verses 1 to 4, and then see where I get that in verses 5 and 6. Verse 1 contains this observation. God has absolute control over the future history of the world. Let's read it. And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, Sealed with seven seals. First question, what's the scroll? What's in this scroll? What does that mean? What's it signify? I think the answer is that it signifies the future. God's decrees or God's plans for what he's going to do in the future. I get that from chapter 6 where the seals begin to be broken and the future begins to be unrolled. Look, for example, in verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 6, 
A rider, first of all, when the first seal is broken, comes forth on a white horse, goes forth conquering and to conquer. And I think that signifies the progress of the gospel heading towards the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The second seal is broken in verses 3 and 4 and a red horse comes out and you can see from the context that it signifies bloodshed, that men are going to go to war against each other with swords and and it will be terrible because of the animosity between nations as the end draws near. And then the other seals are broken. The third and the fourth seal, famine, pestilence, judgments, coming upon the world as the end draws near. So my conclusion is that the scroll is God's written decrees for what's going to happen in the future. And it's all sealed up with these seven seals. That's the first thing to observe. The second thing to observe in this verse is that the the one who is holding this in his right hand sits upon the throne. Well, I, jumped, I skipped one. Notice that it's in his right hand. God holds the scroll in his right hand. He holds history. He holds the future. Nobody else has it in their hand. And it's God's hand. Nobody can take this out of God's hands. So God holds the future. His decrees in his right hand. The third thing to observe is that he's sitting there on a throne. And the throne, of course, signifies his, his right and his authority and his power to rule over the earth. So in the, in the scroll is written the future. The future is in his right hand. He sits upon the throne. And so the point is he reigns. And there's one other observation from the verse. The completeness of his rule and the perfection of his decrees is signified by the fact that the scroll is written on the inside and the outside. That's very unusual. You don't usually write on the back of a scroll because then you can read it on the outside. What does that mean? That it's written within and without. I think it means it's packed, it's full, and there's no place left for any additions. No little gaps left out as though the King of Kings could uh, fail to foresee some future eventuality and then later on write in the script, for what he wants the actors to say. It's done. It is finished. This scroll, this script is written. So the scroll is written. It's complete. It's in the right hand. He's on the throne. And the point is clear. God reigns in the future. God's going to control. That's what this whole book is written to show. The main point of the book of Revelation is God will win. Because he reigns. The lesson we should learn from that is to bow in awe and reverence and fear before this God. There are so many people who when God brings a stroke of judgment upon the world, shake their fist in his face. This book has many of those. You read those texts where it says, and still they did not give him glory after he had wiped out a third of humanity. And still they did not give him glory. All the catastrophes in the world 
are God's way of getting attention for His majesty and His rights over the world. And to humble us to the dust because we don't have any rights before Him whatsoever. When God reigns over the future and holds it in His hand and writes the script ahead of time and fills it up so that nobody else can write on it, we ought to be on our faces before such a God. There is no hope to rebel and escape the rocks and the mountains. Second observation from verses 1 to 4 is found in verses 2 and 3. Namely, no creature in heaven and on earth, no creature in the universe can open these seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. Why doesn't God open the scroll? Can't he break those seals? What's he waiting around for? I'll give you my summary answer, and then I think you'll see it as the text develops. When this scroll unrolls, there is going to be revealed and executed such amazing happiness and joy and privilege for sinners like you and me who repent, that God would be absolutely unjust to bring it to pass by himself. It would be as though it didn't matter that humanity had trampled his glory in the dirt. It would be as though you could just take the sins of humanity and sweep them under the rug of the universe and say, oh, let's let bygones be bygones. It doesn't really matter that much. No harm done to my glory. God will not bring history to a close like that. And so he waits. He waits until one comes who can demonstrate that God does not sweep sin under the rug. He waits until one comes forth who can demonstrate that the people who are blessed were ransomed with an infinitely high price to demonstrate the glory of God and the evil of sin. And that nothing has been swept under the rug at all. The lessons we learn from this second point that there isn't anyone found to do that is twofold. Number one, God is a God of love because he won't open the scroll without the hands of a Savior. If he opened that scroll by himself, everybody would go to hell without exception. And he's a great God of love that he waits until one comes forth whose hands are pierced 
who did something to make a new future. And the second lesson we learn is that without Jesus, the future is all bleak. And there's no hope in the future. Which leads us to the third very brief observation in verse 4. And I wept much that no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So what's the observation? Without Jesus, there is only going to be weeping. Real simple, isn't it? Without Jesus, there is only going to be weeping. And so till Jesus comes forth to open these scrolls, the only prospect before the world is a world without redemption. A world without salvation. An end to history with nothing but judgment. Now, here we are at the main point in verses 5 and 6. So let me state it again. Because Jesus is a lamb-like lion and a lion-like lamb, he has the right to bring this world to an end for the glory of his name and the good of his people. Let's see where this comes from. First of all, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Weep not, lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is someone who can do it. The lion can do it. It says he can do it because he conquered. Now, what does that mean? When and how did, did the lion conquer? Who did he eat up? And when did he do it and how? Drop down to verse 9 and I'll read it. And you ask yourself, now what's the relationship between verse 9 and verse 5? The context is that the four living creatures and the 24 elders are falling down and singing this new song. Saying... Worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals, for thou wast slain, and by thy blood didst ransom men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and hast made them a kingdom, and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Now, do you see the grammatical links between verse 5 and 9? In verse 5, it says that the reason the lion has a right to open the seals is because he conquered. And in verse 9, it says the reason he has a right to open the seals is because he was slain. From which I infer he is a lamb-like lion. He did not win the victory merely by being a lion. His magnificence and his beauty is not in a simple thing. It's in a complex thing. 
He was a lamb-like lion. When he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he was headed for a throne. And when he went out of Jerusalem on Good Friday, he was like a lamb headed for the slaughter. When he walked into the temple with whip in hand, he was like a lion driving the robbers out of the temple. And a few days later, that lion just gave his neck to the knife and was slaughtered like a lamb. He won his victory not simply by being a lion, but by being a lamb-like lion. By getting a lamb-like victory. It's one of those tactical defeats that a, a brilliant general uses when he fades back, sucks in the enemy, and then closes in on him. Jonathan Edwards has a magnificent description of the analogy between Jonah and uh, Jesus. And Jesus said, you know, that I'll be, the Son of Man will be three days in the ground, just like Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale. Listen to what Edwards says. The devil had, as it were, swallowed up Christ. He was a lamb. As the whale did Jonah, but it was a deadly poison to him. He gave him a mortal wound in his bowels. He was soon sick of his morsel and was forced to do by him as the whale did Jonah. So to this day, he is heart sick of what he then swallowed as his prey. Isn't that great? That's exactly what happened when the lamb gave in. Here's another analogy that Edwards uses. You know what Samson did against the enemies of God? He did a lot of demolition of them during his life. But oh, what he did in his death. Here's the way Edward says it. And thus the true Samson does more towards the destruction of his enemies at his death than in his life. In yielding up himself to death, he pulls down the temple of Dagon and destroys many thousands of his enemies even while they are making sport of his sufferings. Isn't that great? The lion, Samson, weakens himself to become a lamb and draws down the kingdom of Satan in destruction. So, on the one hand, he is a lamb-like lion, but he is also a lion-like lamb. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. Now notice two things. One, he is standing. He is not crumpled in a pool of blood anymore. He's up and on his feet next to the throne of the Almighty. Secondly, he has seven horns. That's a very strange lamb. This is a very strange book. 
But we know what that means. You just read the Old Testament, read the rest of Revelation. You know what horns are. Oxen have horns. I remember a sermon I preached. I still love that sermon. First Christmas sermon I ever preached. The Lord will raise up for us a horn in Israel. And I described for you an oxen about eight feet tall with a span that would reach maybe from those pieces of wood to those pieces of wood. That's what horns are all about. And what does seven mean? Completion. Perfection. So here's no ordinary lamb. This is a lion-like lamb. This is a mighty lamb. Look at verse 16 of chapter 6. And you'll see what becomes of this lamb at the end of the age who laid down his life for us. Verse 16, the sixth seal has been opened. Terrible, terrible things are coming upon the world and the men are calling out to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's a strange phrase. That's a terrible phrase. He's going to become a devourer, this lion-like lamb. He's going to become a devourer in the end. And people are going to want to be crushed by mountains rather than to be devoured by the wrath of the Lamb. Go to chapter 17 with me for one more picture of the Lamb in the last day. Chapter 17, verse 14, the final enemies of God raising up their forces to fight against the Christ. And here's what happens. They will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. So this is no ordinary Lamb. Standing beside the throne. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so I conclude by stating the main point again. Because Jesus is a lamb like lion and a lion like lamb, he has a right to bring this world to an end for the glory of his name and for the good of his ransomed people. And so I pray that you're among that people. I don't want any of you to experience the wrath of the Lamb. And you won't want it either. And today is a day of grace and a day of salvation. Nobody in this room has to experience the wrath of the Lamb. All you have to do is trust him as your lamb who ransomed a people for himself and submit to him as your lion leader and join the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the millions and millions of angels and worship him with all your heart and you'll never experience the wrath of the lamb but only the glory and the beauty and the admirableness of this one who combines in himself all the diverse excellencies of the universe. And maybe it would happen that 
you would do that authentically for the first time as we close by singing a hymn to Christ that's printed right there in your worship folder. A hymn to the Lord. Let's sing it together. Shall we stand? Now to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, and to the Lion, and to the Lamb, be power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing now and forevermore. And all the people said, Amen.